One of the most transforming understandings in our practice happens from the realization that it's possible to practice not for ourselves alone, but for the benefit and the happiness, for the welfare of all beings. This aspiration that both our lives and our practice be for the benefit of all is something which is called in Pali and Sanskrit bodhicitta. Bodhi means enlightenment or awakened state and jitta means heart or mind. We could think of bodhicitta as the heart-mind of awakening and the aspiration to realize that awakening in order to be of benefit to all others. What's so striking when we look both at our own lives and the lives of people in the world, is that we see that everyone wants to be happy. And yet there are not so many people who actually understand the causes of happiness, of doing the actions that cause happiness. When we look around both in ourselves and in others, we see that everyone wants to avoid suffering. And yet somehow we haven't learned how to give up or renounce or let go of the unwholesome actions which cause suffering. And so in this very fundamental way, our deepest wish and our actions are often in contradiction to one another. So bodhicitta, this transformative motivation in our hearts, is that wish or that aspiration that we learn how to arouse the awakened mind, the awakened heart in ourselves so that we can then help all others to awaken that same possibility in them. So there are a couple of questions to consider. One very fundamental one, how can we more fully understand this aspiration and this motivation of bodhicitta? And how can we begin to put it into practice for ourselves? What does it actually mean for us to say that we're practicing for the benefit of all? I mean, how does sitting here watching our breath or feeling the pain in the knee or lift, move, place, of what possible benefit is that? And perhaps one is wondering what possible benefit is it to oneself, much less anybody else. But if we look a little deeper, it is possible to see how our practice benefits not only ourselves but all others. And one of the great 
the great beauties of the Dharma comes from understanding that the more fully we understand ourselves, the more completely we understand everyone else. Because the nature of the body, the nature of the mind, is the same in all of us. Sitting here in Barry with a knee pain, and the feeling of that pain is no different than someone in Burma, some monastery sitting with a knee pain. The nature of pain is the same. Whether we're from the West or from the East or whatever, the nature of anger, the nature of fear, the nature of love, compassion, kindness, these are universal qualities of the body, of the mind. The more deeply we understand these in ourselves, the more connection we feel with everybody else. Now our stories, our individual stories, are all quite different. We have different backgrounds, different upbringing, different education, different cultural situations. So the stories are all different. But the essential nature of our mind-body is the same. It's precisely from seeing more deeply this commonality of experience that we begin to feel a much stronger connection with everyone else. And when we experience suffering in ourselves, it becomes easy to feel compassion for the suffering of others because we know what it feels like. When we have a glimmer or a taste of the possibility of freedom in ourselves, we have that same sense that, yes, this is possible for everyone else. And so again, there's this feeling of compassion, of loving kindness. We have so much in common, and what's so uh, beautiful in a situation like this, in a long retreat, and those of you with experience in this know this very well, the feeling of closeness that can come about from sitting for six weeks or three months in silence with everybody else. You, know, you, may not, you may not, hopefully, not speak to each other for these three months, and yet at the end, there's a very special and common bond. Because we've touched deeply this universal aspect of what it means to be alive, what it means to be a human being. So this is the first way our practice can be of benefit to others. The more we understand ourselves, the more deeply we understand everybody else, and we can relate from that place of understanding. The second way our practice benefits others has to do with the transformative effect of mindfulness and of awareness on our own minds in our own lives. What I'm about to say is totally obvious. If we're more loving and more peaceful and less judgmental and less angry, there's that much more love and kindness and compassion, that much less fear and anger and judgment in the world. How we are inevitably 
and inexorably affect everyone around us. There's no way for that not to happen. And so as we let go of those conditions in the mind which are painful, which are unwholesome, which cause suffering for ourselves and people around us, the world is that much more a loving, peaceful place. It's like we're in the middle of a storm, big raging storm in a small boat. If there's one wise, calm person on that boat, that person can bring everyone to safety. Well, the world is like that boat. You know, it's in the storm of tremendous raging greed and fear and hatred and all kinds of suffering in the world. Can we be that wise, calm person that helps to bring everyone else to safety? This is the possibility for us. This is the effect of the transformation of our own hearts and minds. Right at this juncture, there's a very um, transformative shift that can take place. And it really was very opening, it was mind and heart opening for me as I came to understand this. Because for years in my practice, I knew very clearly and deeply that my practice would have a beneficial effect on everyone else. It was just very obvious and clear. But a shift took place when I went from that understanding that yes, my practice will certainly help the people around me, to making the benefit of others the very motivation to practice. Do you see the difference? It's like we take that motivation and put it right at the beginning of our journey, rather than seeing it simply as a consequence. This is the motivation of bodhicitta. We take that understanding and place it right at the beginning of our journey, and say, may I undertake this practice, and may I live my life so that it may be of benefit, and be for the welfare, for the happiness of everyone else. Well, this is a great heart-opening motivation. It makes our path very wide, very embracing, very inclusive. This bodhicitta is a vast and profound aspiration. Now just think for a moment what it would mean, this aspiration that we live our lives and do our practice in order to awaken, to liberate all beings. That's a tall order. And so I think it's very helpful not to sort of idealize it in a way, or to live in illusion about where we are. I think it's very important to be very realistic about where we are, to realize that what we can do is plant a seed. We plant the seed of a possibility. Yes, this 
is a wonderful thing. We plant the seed, we water it, we nurture it. That doesn't all of a sudden make us into saints. You know, we still have to deal with all our unwholesome, unskillful, selfish motivations. But planting the seed of bodhicitta gives us another reference point. It helps us see the rest with greater clarity. I want to read something from the Dalai Lama, who probably, as well or better than most, really exemplifies this this aspiration and motivation. He said, speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality, except for one small thing. That is the kind heart, which I try to explain to others, and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I'm really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. Okay, so if this is the Dalai Lama saying, I can't really pretend to practice bodhicitta, but it does inspire me. It gives us a certain ease, I think, you know, in undertaking, in practicing it, in planting the seed, without, without hallucinating <laughs> about how we actually are. But the realization and just, just the seed is very transformative because it helps us measure everything else we do. We can come back to it. A couple of ways we can water the seed that I found helpful and inspiring for me in my practice. Often at the beginning of a sitting, I'll just make the aspiration, may this practice, or may I attain awakening, may I attain liberation, for the welfare and benefit of all. So it just sets, sets that motivation in the heart, right at the beginning of a sitting. May I attain awakening for the welfare and benefit of all. It's a reminder that we're not doing this for ourselves alone. And at the end of a sitting, I came across one formulation of the dedication of merit, which I love a lot, and so I wanted to share it with you. This one formulation of the dedication of merit says, may the merit of this practice, practice that we've just done, be joined with the merit of all the virtuous actions of the three times, past and present and future. And may the merit of my practice be joined together with the merit of all the virtuous actions of the three times. And together, may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, the liberation of all beings. And it's just a wonderful sense of 
kind of adding one's own little piece of it, you know, to that vast storehouse of merit of everyone's skillful actions in past, present, and future, and then kind of wrapping it up all together and dedicating all of that. And again, it brings one out of sort of sort of on narrow little concerns about oh that was a good sitting, that was a bad sitting, you know. It wasn't as good as yesterday. It just takes us right out of that kind of self-referential judgment you know, and dedicates it along with you know, everybody's skillful actions, past, present, and future, to something much greater. And so it gives tremendous energy and inspiration to our practice, to our efforts, to our energy. What I found that this does is it very much enlivens the feeling of metta and compassion. Now it really brings those feelings from a formal practice when, we, when we're doing the metta or compassion practices. It infuses the vipassana, the mindfulness, the awareness. It infuses that with this feeling of love and compassion because we're relating our practice to everyone else. So a question that I would really like to explore further tonight, how can we effect this transformation of our own mind and of our own consciousness? How can we liberate ourselves in order to be of benefit to everyone else? Because that's really the essence of our practice in the path. One of the first insights of insight meditation, perhaps you've been wondering <laughs> just where these insights are, but, <laughs> but this first one you've all had, this is guarantee that every single one of you has had the first and in some way the most important insight. And that is the awareness of how frequently our mind wanders. Has anybody not gotten that yet? (laughs) It's important not to underestimate this understanding because most people in the world don't have it. They don't understand their own minds well enough to know how often we're lost you know, and not know what's going on. If you went up to anybody on the street and said, does your mind wander? No, oh, no, I know what I'm doing. Because until we take the time to actually sit down and look at our minds, we have no idea. But as I said, you have all experienced this. And it's quite amazing to see just how slippery the mind is. You know, we give it a very simple object like the breath. And what happens? We're with a breath or two, we feel a breath or two, and then a thought comes or an image or a memory. You know, and we hop on this train of association and it just takes us away. We get lost, you know, in our thoughts, in our daydreams, in our plans, in our judgments. 
And what's really amazing is that these thoughts don't even have to be pleasant. <laughs> you know, that doesn't stop us for a moment. <laughs> now we get lost in old arguments and hurts and regrets and whatever painful things. We get lost in over and over again. We hop on this train of association, we have no idea where the train is going. It's not like we've bought a ticket for someplace. It's just, we hop on the train, we have no idea where it's going. Somewhere down the track, it's like we wake up, we get off the train, often in a completely different mental environment. We could be caught up in some whole drama, or story, or mental turmoil from having taken that ride. And this is the nature, this is the habit of our minds. The Buddha said something very apt about this habit. He said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. But once mastered, not even your mother or your father could help you as much as a mind that is well-trained, well well-tamed. The Buddha is saying something very important. He's saying that the unguarded mind, no one can do us as much harm as our own unguarded minds because it just leads us into all the realms of suffering. And no one could benefit, even the people closest to us, who love us the most. No one could be of more benefit to us than our own well-trained mind, well-tamed mind. So seeing this, having had insight, this first insight, and really seeing it deeply, this habit of the wandering mind, of getting lost in the stories and dramas and daydreams, it points to the importance, the essential importance, of stabilizing awareness, of steadying the awareness. So we're residing in that place of wakefulness rather than residing in the place of delusion. So how to do it? What is the nature of the training that will actually effect this transformation for us. How do we learn to stay awake? The essence of the training is the development, the practicing of perhaps what is the simplest aspect of the mind. So it's not something not that we have to do something that's very complicated or complex. It's really learning to cultivate the very simplest aspect. And this aspect of mind, which trains us to be awake, to stay awake, has been given different names. We call it bare attention. Some traditions call it naked awareness can be called mindfulness. Just that sense of being present for what's arising in the moment. 
It's called naked awareness, a bare attention, because it is very simple, uncontrived, non-interfering, non-judging. It's not the mind which has an opinion about everything. It's simple. It's utterly simple. Settling back into the awareness of whatever it is that's arising in the moment. There's nothing more to do. It's the awareness of things just as they are. We don't have to change the presentation of experience. We simply have to learn how to rest in the awareness of it. In the beginning, often quite a determined effort is needed to be mindful. Now we get lost so often, and the habit of being lost is so strong, we really have to arouse an energy and a determination and a strength of mind to keep coming back so that we're not indulging that habit of distraction. So we work with that kind of right effort and determination coming back again and again. Something else I want to read here. This is from Catholic saint, Saint Francis de Sales, who also was working in a very meditative tradition and understood the same process that we're working with here. He said, if the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. It's the same. A Catholic monastery in France, wherever he was from, And what we're doing here, it's the same training of the heart. Even if our heart goes away every time we bring it back, if we do bring it back, our hour would be well employed. That's the training in mindfulness, in awareness. As, As the mindfulness and concentration get stronger through practice, it becomes more effortless. Instead of this strong determination and relentless quality that we need to bring to it, at a certain point, it all starts to flow by itself. It feels like the mind is just naturally going to the object, staying with the object, and it wanders, but it comes back by itself. And so in this phase of practice, it gets a lot easier. Of course, it has its own dangers, because then we can just put things on cruise control you know, and stay right at that level. But after the initial struggles to be mindful, it's kind of a relief. You know, okay, things seem to be going pretty smoothly now. At a further point in practice, there's another very radical shift of understanding. And that is the understanding that the very nature of our mind is awareness. That awareness is not something we have to do or create or produce. 
we begin to recognize that the very essence, the very nature of mind is awareness. And then it's simply a question of coming back to it when we get distracted. It's as if we've recognized our, our home. In some traditions, this is called self-existent wakefulness. And we're just resting in that innate wakefulness of mind. So there are all of these different levels you know, and transitions of our understanding. At whatever stage or phase we're at, there's an important balance that's necessary and that we play with and work with. And that is the balance between being active, actively alert, and being receptive, being at rest. You know, in the famous example the Buddha gave in terms of right effort of tuning the strings of a lute too tight, doesn't work too loose. The music is not right. It has to be tuned exactly right. The tension in the strings has to be just right. In exactly the same way, we need to look at and observe and adjust the quality of our effort. Because sometimes people get too tight in trying to be mindful. You know, and just gets to be a great strain and a great struggle. On the other hand, sometimes people are too relaxed. You know, oh, just let it happen when it happens. And then nothing happens. <laughs> you know, we just keep on in our distracted way. Finding the balance between being active and being receptive. And an image which has helped a lot for me over the years, or a metaphor you might say, is the sense of listening. It's as if we were listening to music. Now, when you're listening to music, do you need to do this in order to hear it more carefully? <laughs> Probably not. You know, you don't, have to, you don't have to lean into it in order to hear it. We can be very relaxed, settled back, at ease, and also alert and undistracted, because if we're busy thinking about things, we're not going to hear the music. So can you be with the experience of the mind and body as if you were listening to your favorite music? Just settle back, at ease, in a state of relaxation, but very alert to each arising moment. One of the reasons that we've been emphasizing hearing a lot, you know, and incorporating hearing into the instructions, is because in the experience of hearing, it reveals very clearly the possibility of this balance. Because when you're sitting and a sound appears. Have you had the experience of how effortlessly and spontaneously that sound is known? You're just sitting and a sound suddenly appears and it's known. There's no effort that you need to make to be mindful of it. 
This is on cue. <laughs> it's quite amazing. The sound is, it just appears and it's known in this open, empty quality of mind. So that, that gives us a clue as to how we can be with the breath. Because the breath appears, the sensations of each breath appear in just the same way. There's no special effort that's needed to breathe and really no special effort that's needed to know the sensations of the breath when we're undistracted. When we're simply present, settled in the body, the breath appears, these sensations appear and are known, just like the sound is known. Or sensations in the body or thoughts and emotions, it's all the same display of appearances. So we have to practice finding that place of balance. Using a primary object is a very skillful means to help us to help us work with this balance and being undistracted. And so using the breath, using sitting touching, using the movement of the walking, coming back to it again and again, especially in these beginning days and even weeks of the retreat, really work with the primary object as a foundation for yourself in the practice. It would help build the steadiness, strengthen the steadiness, it will build the concentration. It's not that you need to get tight or completely exclusive with it, but give emphasis to it. It really will create a very strong foundation for you in the practice, which will then allow a more spacious, open, choiceless awareness. So we use the primary object as a skillful means. We use the mental noting as a skillful means. Now, when people need, each one of you needs to find your own skillful use of it. Sometimes, to start with, people use the noting with the breath, in, out, rise and fall. But after some time, you might find that you're quite connected with the breath. You don't need the note to lead you to it. Then you might drop the noting with the breath and simply use it for strong sensations in the body. Or if you feel very strongly connected with the sensations, you might use the noting for thoughts every time you're thinking. Become aware of it. Or note it for the hindrances or emotions or mind states. Things that you might normally not be mindful of. The noting helps to wake us up. There are times in practice where the mind is very clear, the concentration is strong, you're right there in each moment. Maybe you don't need the noting at all at that point. You're very present. But even then, I would suggest occasional intermittent notes. Just drop a few in every once in a while. Because sometimes even an intermittent mental note can cut through a level of identification and fixation of holding in the mind that we didn't even know was there. 
Now it can get very subtle, the places where the mind is holding to something or other. Now it might be holding to calm, it might be holding to concentration, it might be holding to a state of peace, it might be holding to the effort. And just every once in a while making a note of the mind state, of what's arising. It's as if the note can help release that attachment or identification in the mind. So play with it. Now, it is a skillful mean, it's a tool. At different times, it will be helpful for you. So just explore when it is, when you don't need it. We use a primary object to stabilize attention. We use the noting. Now, in one Tibetan tradition, <laughs> one of the tools they use is the short, sharp shout of the word pet. Yeah, and it's just people who have done this and practiced this. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's just really sharp and loud and strong. And when it's done in a group, I mean, <laughs> one feels like one could have a heart attack. <laughs> Well, the mental noting is a little bit like the pet. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a more subtle form of it. It can help cut through. That's, that's the effect that it can have, cut through identification. So you want to just play with it and see the effect in the mind. Not simply, it's not simply a question of using it as some mechanical thing. You know, when you get into this endless repetition, you know, in, out, in, out, in, out, even when you're walking. Uh, <laughs> as can happen. <laughs> it's really to be used skillfully you know, and effectively and let go of when it's not needed. Okay, the primary object, using that to steady the concentration and mindfulness, using the mental noting when it's skillful. Another very helpful skillful means, really helpful, is slowing down a bit. Because if we're moving through the day at our usual speed, our mind will probably be doing its usual thing. If you slow down a bit, and it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to be creeping around all the time, although sometimes creeping meditation is quite uh, helpful. But at other times, even if you're not kind of in that very very microscopically slow movement, but basically slow down. Just that settling back will actually open up whole new realms of experience. It enables us to see more and to feel more and to perceive more because we're not rushing to the next moment, to the next situation, to the next thing we have to do. And so you could use rushing, the feeling of rushing, as a, as a mindfulness bell. Every time you feel that you're rushing, at whatever speed you're going, let that be like a bell going off. Okay, stop for a moment, slow down, settle back. Because rushing means we're anticipating, we're ahead of ourselves, we're looking forward, we're not settled back into our body. There is a big difference between knowing you're moving 
and feeling the sensations of the movement. Knowing your movement is a good step, so that's, that's a lot better than moving and being totally lost. So the first step is, okay, I know I'm moving, but if you'd like to go deeper in your understanding, in your perception of experience, settle back, slow down, and as you move, actually feel the sensations of the movement. Because in the feeling of those sensations of the movement, you will go beyond the concept and the form of the body. You'll begin to enter the level of energy and sensations. The form of the body can disappear entirely. It's a whole different level of understanding. And it's really the entrance, or an entrance, into seeing selflessness and impermanence. To use the time here, you know, in really a, a careful and caring way. When we slow down, it highlights the fact that no activity is less important than any other. It's all equal. Reaching for a door is exactly as valuable on this path of awakening as sitting here feeling our breath. Everything is precisely equal in terms of being a vehicle for waking up, for being alert. So if we generally slow down during the day, like we begin to pay attention to the details. I'd like to read something. This is about attention to details. It's a wonderful story. It's about the great Swiss naturalist, Louis Agassiz, and the way he trained his students in observation. And this was written by one of his students. Uh, His name was uh, Samuel Scudder. That was the name of the student. Okay, Agassiz intended to teach the students to see, to observe, and he intended to put the burden of study on them. Study nature, he said, not books. Just a little PS here. Another word for Dharma is nature. Study Dharma, not books. This is what we're doing. So the initial interview at an end, Agassiz would ask the student when they would like to begin. If the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish. Usually a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen, personally selected by the master from one of the wide-mouthed jars that lined the shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan. The student was to look at the fish and was told, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. Samuel Scudder, one of the students, described the experience as one of the most memorable turning points in his life. In ten minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. 
Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I was told that I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now with surprise I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. I was piqued, I was mortified, still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not. But I see how little I saw before. The day following, having thought of the fish most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and Agassiz replied, look at your fish. (laughs) In Scudder's case, the lesson lasted a full three days. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction, and the best lesson he ever had, Scudder recalled, a legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy, and with which he could not be parted. So we're all quite fortunate. (laughs) We don't have to be observing this dead, foul-smelling fish, just our own minds and bodies. But can we learn to look, learn to observe with that degree of care and attentiveness? Because that's where the discoveries are to be found. It's through developing these tools of attention within ourselves. And one of my colleagues, Sharon Salzberg, will be teaching the second half. When she first sat with Upandita, uh, her practice was getting quite deep, and she would go in for an interview, ready to give her report on her experience. And so she'd go in and do her bows and get ready to report on you know, all her deep experiences. And Upandita would ask her, What did you experience when you brushed your teeth? Of course, she hadn't paid particular attention to that. And that was all. That was the end of the interview. And left. The next day, come in, and she was ready to report on what she experienced when brushing her teeth. And he asked her, what did you experience when you put your shoes on? She hadn't paid particular attention. End of interview. This went on for weeks. Every single day, she would come in, and he would ask about some other little activity. And she said, by the end of that time, 
It was the most valuable training in giving attention to everything equally. But it's not a question that some things are more meditative than others. It's our life. And it's our mind and it's our bodies going through our life. The gift of the retreat is the opportunity to pay that kind of attention. The skill of it is not to make it a burden, but to really bring a sense of great joy and of great interest. Really the only way to sustain our energy for this endeavor is through the sense of interest and exploration. There's a, there's a Buddhist proverb which says that the Dharma is nobody's property. It belongs to whomever is most interested. Now, the nature of ourselves, the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom is there to be discovered. It belongs to whoever is most interested. And so we practice that quality of attentiveness and observation again and again, even though our minds wander, our hearts wander a hundred times, a thousand times in an hour, each time we bring it back and slowly the heart gets trained. We really begin to cultivate this sense of interest with every part of our experience. You know, it's amazing that we can be sitting watching the breath and think that the breath is boring. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. I've seen it 10,000 times. How would you feel about the breath if somebody were holding your head underwater? It would be the most compelling thing. (laughs) Well, this says something. Each breath is actually sustaining our lives. Every single breath we take is sustaining our life. Oh, it's boring. (laughs) I think we're missing something. (laughs) Can we be with the breath and feel it and begin to get a sense, really, of the mystery of what's going on? Somehow or other, this life energy is sustained by it, each and every single breath. Can we just begin to open up and to feel that and appreciate that. What is a thought? And we have millions of them. Do we ever stop to consider actually, well, what is it? What is this phenomenon? Not the content, not the story, which we get lost in over and over again, but just as a phenomenon, what is this thing that we give so much credence to, that we invest with so much power. We do that because we haven't really observed carefully the nature of thought. Because if we did, we would see that there's not much there. It's, you know, what is an emotion? These feelings that can be so overwhelming. This is the sense of interest, the sense of exploration that has 
not to do with the particular content of it all, but actually to the very nature of, of all these phenomena. And what is the nature of awareness? This is the great mystery. What is it that knows all of these different things, knows the breath and knows sensations and knows thoughts and emotions? What is that? Because when we look for awareness, we see there's nothing to find. We can't locate it, we can't find it, we can't touch it, we can't see it. And yet somehow, this process of cognizing, of knowing, is happening endlessly in each moment, effortlessly. The very nature of the mind is awareness, is knowing, is consciousness. This is the quality of interest that we can bring to our practice. It really is a path of discovery. Because it's in the discovery of what's true that we find freedom. We need to get past the habit of superficiality. Now, our experience is so familiar to us that we're in the habit of not looking deeply, not looking carefully, not looking in a sustained way, like Scudder and his poor fish. But the more we practice, and this is what we're all doing here, you know, it's, it's out of that interest to look more deeply and carefully now, the whole mystery of awareness and the whole possibility of freedom is revealed. And we can do it all. All of our efforts and interest and willingness and exploration all can be held in the great motivation of bodhicitta, that we're doing it not for ourselves alone, but out of the aspiration that whatever wisdom and whatever compassion, whatever kindness we develop can be for the benefit of all others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.